uh, time to come together this morning and sing your praises. Father, we sang from our hearts that we want to know you and then know you more. We sang from our hearts, Lord, pleading that, that, and, and clinging to the promise that you will hold us fast. And Father, we sang songs um, re- regarding the, the deity and the glory and the headship of Jesus Christ. And Father, we, um, we fail in all of these, these categories, Lord God, as we seek to know you and live for you, God. We are fallen people and failed people, and we need your grace, Lord, to, pro- to progress. And Father, none of us on our own can, um, can be saved. None of us on our own can be worthy. That is your work that you've done through your Son, and we come to you this morning and give you thanks and praise for all that he has done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Harold, you, you mentioned that you didn't see any visitors today, but I did want to point out we do have some visitors. We've got, we've got um, the Randalls are in town to visit with us, so it's good to see you guys. Thank you so much for, for coming. And uh, also, we've got Linda Strife, who we haven't seen in a long time. It's awesome to see you this morning again, so welcome. So, thank you guys for being here. Um, well, let's get back into Colossians and the background of this book. And I think there's not a better place to start than the book of Acts, chapters 19 and 20. And you remember that Acts is a historical account of the activities of the Spirit-empowered apostles and disciples as they spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire in that early part of the first century. And back in Acts 19, we read of the account of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And Paul had come into Ephesus and he met up with 12 men. And these men were described as disciples of John the Baptist. And these men had not heard of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul had taught them more fully, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And Paul laid his hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, which was very common in that apostolic era. And after this episode, Paul, over the course of three months, is seen in the Jewish synagogue. And he's speaking boldly. Speaking out boldly, it says, and reasoning and persuading the people there about the kingdom of God. And just as an aside, I love the way that Paul's ministry is described here. There's this bold proclamation of the word on one hand, and on the other hand, there's a reasoning and a persuading side to Paul's presentation of the gospel. And if you're familiar as I am with the the two dominant schools of thought in Christian apologetics... Um, which are the presuppositional approach and the evidentiary approach, Um, you know, those two sides need not divide over their preferred approaches, you know, given what we see here in Paul. I honestly think that you look at Paul, and in a presuppositional way, he boldly proclaims the truth. And also, in an evidentiary sense, he reasoned and he persuaded as effectively as he could. So I think there's there's some room for... um, reconciliation there if they will be informed a bit by how Paul ministered in Ephesus. But that's a freebie. That just popped into my head this week as I was studying. So take that for what you will. Let's go back to Paul in Ephesus because it wasn't long before there were some in the synagogue who became hardened and opposed to Paul's message. So Paul took his disciples and he left. And he went to, I mentioned this last week, the school of Tyrannus there in Ephesus. And he taught there daily for two years, it says. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we read a very important little fact. 
that's very easy to miss when we're just reading through the account. And it says this, that Paul's teaching in the school of Tyrannics took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Very important little sentence. Because those who lived in Asia, or Asia Minor, as many of your Bible maps may may designate it, that's where Colossae is. So this little easy-to-miss sentence is full of meaning. And behind this little sentence are the conversion stories of countless people. And the, 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 the founding stories of numerous churches that were located in Asia Minor. Think, with, if you will, to the book of Revelation. The early parts, it's comprised of seven letters to churches. Where were those seven churches located? Asia, right? These are referred to as the seven churches which are in Asia. Well, how did they come to be? They were born out of Paul's Ephesian ministry, his ministry there in Ephesus. Just think about how important that little sentence is in Acts. Paul's ministry in Ephesus had an immense impact on the lives and the futures of people in that whole region of the Roman Empire. And this letter to the Colossians kind of helps us you know, move from a satellite perspective to a zoom in on the power of that little sentence in Acts 19. So let's move on and see what happens next. Because the text in Acts tells us that Paul's ministry and message was powerfully confirmed by demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's power. Acts 19, 11-12 says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So you can see why people like Epaphras who was visiting Ephesus from Colossae and these other surrounding areas, you can see why they were so impacted by the gospel message and the ministry of Paul. And they were moved to take that message and that power back to their own communities. But eventually for Paul, trouble arose um, in Ephesus, as it did oftentimes, because there were some people who didn't like the traction that his ministry was gaining, so he had to leave Ephesus. And he left Asia Minor altogether, and he went to Macedonia and to Greece. And he was planning from there to make a trip back to Jerusalem. And so after a short stint away from Asia Minor, he comes back to Asia Minor for a quick stay. But when he comes back to Asia Minor, he doesn't go to Ephesus. He doesn't return there because the account says that Paul was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem. So he just needed to make a quick stop in Asia Minor. And so what he did, he stops a few miles to the south of Ephesus in a little city called Miletus. And from there, as we read on into Acts chapter 20, we see Paul sending word to the elders of the Ephesian church a few miles north to come and meet him in Miletus before he heads to Jerusalem. And so Acts chapter 20 gives us this powerful, tearful farewell meeting with the elders of Ephesus. And we get a glimpse in this little meeting with the elders, in a prophetic form of what likely would become the occasion for Paul's letter to the Colossian church. It's all going to make sense in a minute. Acts 20, beginning in verse 18, records the departing words of Paul to the church's leaders. And the portion that's noteworthy that we want to concern ourselves with today in that discussion comes in verses 27 to 32 of Acts chapter 20. And it says this, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, 
to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And here's a very important line coming up. Paul said to them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, he said, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I didn't cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So it would seem, based on a good portion of the content of the Colossian letter, that there were some wolves on the hillsides of Colossae staring down into the Lycus Valley and hungrily desiring to devour the flock of God that was there. And further, it would seem that there were some even in the church at Colossae that had begun to espouse these perverse things and drawing the disciples away from the purity of the gospel, just as Paul had predicted to the elders in Ephesus. Ephesus was also in Asia Minor, So this was the emergence of a false teaching that was endangering God's people in Colossae. So Paul wrote the letter. This is one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter, to address this perverse teaching. So let's dig into the text. Colossians 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul introduces himself as an apostle, which is very common. He's pointing to the the, the readers to his authority in Christ for their benefit and pointing out the fact that Jesus is the one who sends him. And this is in line with God's will, he says. Paul was commissioned by God himself, remember on that Damascus road? Not any man. No one laid hands on Paul to commission his ministry. Jesus himself called him. But Paul also mentions Timothy, And this would also be pretty common in a number of Paul's letters. Timothy was a disciple that Paul had met in Lystra and Derbe, who became Paul's most important uh, disciple and student. And Timothy was to be the one who would carry on Paul's work after Paul had finished his own course here on the earth. So Paul invested more time, it would seem, in Timothy than virtually anyone else. This would also be important for the Colossians because Timothy would eventually become the pastor of over the church in Ephesus, which is that capital of Asia Minor. And so it had a a major effect on what happened in in Ephesus, had a major effect on what happened in the rest of Asia Minor. So if they didn't already know Timothy and Colossae, they certainly would in the future. And Paul addresses the letter to the saints and the the faithful brethren. And he designates two important locations of the first readers of this letter. Geographically, they were at Colossae. But spiritually, and more importantly, they were in Christ. Paul was writing to a a higher society that was within Colossae, the Christian community there. And each location brought their own responsibilities. As citizens of Colossae, people had responsibilities to those surrounding them in their communities. As citizens of heaven, they have responsibilities before the Lord. And Paul calls them both saints and faithful brethren. And I don't want to linger on this point to try to make the case that Paul was addressing two different groups within the church. I don't necessarily think that's the sense um, behind this greeting. But I will say this. I think it's important 
Uh, we, do, we become saints when we trust Christ. We become saints when we trust Christ. When we hear and receive the gospel call, God calls us and considers us holy and separated from this world. That's what saints mean. But that holiness or that righteousness, it's an imputed one, not an earned one. But on the other hand, it would seem that faithfulness is more a mark of behavior and reputation, gained by obedience over time. In other words, saints can sometimes behave unfaithfully, right? I think we can see that that rings true in our own lives at times. We still sin, but we aspire toward and grow in faithfulness. Paul finishes his greeting with grace and peace to you from God our Father. This is a common greeting for Paul also in his letters. They're sequential. Grace precedes peace. And both are a fatherly gift. You don't receive peace apart from the grace of God. Peace follows grace. Paul then moves on in the letter to thanksgiving in prayer. In verses 3 through 8. And if you noticed, um, on the sermon title page, there's a little, you know, Subtle change. Steve, you might want to put that back up there real quick. The, the sermon title. It says it's um, the, the great prayerful purpose of Colossians, but it's actually just part one. Again, I didn't get as far as I thought I would because it, there's just too much here. So today we're only going to get through verses three through eight. So um, having introduced the letter and the sermon to you thus far, let me give you some direction for the rest of our time together today and the next time I get a chance to preach. In verses 3 through 8, we find the reason Paul gives that motivates or produces his prayer. And then when we get there eventually, in verses 9 to 12, we move on to the actual content of Paul's prayer. So verses 3 through 8 are just just telling you why he's praying, not telling you what he's praying. Um. But I think it's, it's, it's very important that when we finally do get to the content of Paul's prayer in verses 9 to 12, I'm going to argue that, that we find as Paul prays, in that prayer we find the purpose and the priorities of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So let's get into verses 3 through 8, the reason for prayer. Now if you're following along in the New American Standard Bible, um, you'll find that all of these verses are just one long run-on sentence. And this was deliberate, I imagine, for the translators. Even though it's it's bad English grammar to have a sentence this long and winding, it's exactly what you find in the Greek text. One long sentence with modifiers. And the main verb of the verses being the phrase, we give thanks. The report of the Colossian church that was brought to Paul by Epaphras was encouraging to Paul. And he was thankful. And the gist of what had caused Paul to be so thankful is in verse 5. And it goes into verse 6. And this is what was causing him to be so thankful. The word of truth. The gospel. Which has come to you. It had borne fruit in their lives. And Paul was thankful because of the gospel. He was thankful that that message had reached them. And what was this gospel message that Paul That made Paul so thankful. The gospel in the Greek is the word euangelion. And that's the exact same word that we 
you, it's behind our word evangelical. So Grace Evangelical Church, it means we spread the good news, right? We spread the gospel. That's what the word is in the Greek, euangelion. And we're all familiar with its meaning. It means good news. But early contexts for this word were used in reference to battle imagery. The idea was one of a city whose soldiers were off to war, waiting to hear tidings of what had occurred during the battle. Had the battle gone well for their soldiers, or had the battle gone badly? The people would wait for a herald, to, not Harold Shook, but a herald, someone who carries a message, right? The people would wait for a herald to run from the battlefield to inform the city of how things had gone. And as the watchman would see the herald on the horizon running to the city to bring the news, anticipation and anxiety would swell within the people as they waited to hear his news. And if he brought glad tidings, he spoke the euangelion, the gospel, the news of victory. I love that image. And is because that isn't is that exactly precisely what the gospel is. Isn't that exactly what it ought to mean to us today? It's good news of victory. Jesus has prevailed. We don't often think of it in these terms, I don't think. But that's truly the imagery that we see in the Scripture so often when we see the word gospel. The first mention of the word in the New Testament is in Matthew 4.23. And Matthew calls it the gospel of the kingdom. And then you see what immediately proceeds from that is a description of Jesus' ministry. And here's what it says. Healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus' ministry looked like an army on the move waging war against evil forces and the kingdom of darkness. And that's precisely what it was. The gospel of the kingdom was the news of an advancing army that couldn't be stopped. Jesus won every battle that he entered. Think of how the demons groveled before Jesus. Think of how sickness and death disappeared at his presence. Think of how hunger and want evaporated when he was there. Think of the power of his words to silence his opponents. And the people of the city and country of God, spiritually speaking, rejoiced at the good news of victory. God was enthroned and his champion was prevailing. At long last, there was good news. With this view of the gospel in mind, now maybe we see a small glimpse of just how dark was the crucifixion to Jesus' followers. We see why it brought such despair and sorrow to those who followed Jesus. Because their undefeated champion, who seemed untouchable and destined for greatness beyond measure, was abruptly stopped, dead in his tracks. And the, the orderly advance of his army had fled in a scattered disarray. And the wicked were smiling and scoffing again. How could this have happened, they thought. We had hoped that he was going to redeem us, said the two men on the road to Emmaus, and set us free. And now he's gone, and all is lost. But what they didn't realize, 
at the time was that there was a final and ultimate enemy that he had to face. And that battle would be his hardest and most glorious. Jesus had one other enemy to defeat, and that was death itself. And its supply line for food and ammunition was the sin of all mankind. And when we come back to Paul here, the author of Colossians, we consider what he meant when he talked about the gospel. What were the contents of his message as he shared it? And we find that Paul tells us specifically what was his message of good news. And it included this dark portion, this crucifixion. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, Paul makes it crystal clear what the message of the gospel is that he proclaimed. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. And here he goes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the gospel that's about to come out, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. So to Paul and to Jesus' disciples after the fact, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus was an integral part of that good news of victory. Without the death of Jesus, the ultimate victory could never be achieved. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and raised on the third day. That's good news. That's glad tidings of victory. Our God is enthroned. And His champion has won. And the And this good news is that Jesus conquered not just death and our sins, but he also conquered spiritual dominions and authorities that exist in the present so that those who receive the gospel share in the triumph over the darkness and evil of this present age. And this theme of Jesus conquering is much in mind in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Look what he says further ahead in in chapter 1, verse 13. We'll get there eventually, but not today. But I'm just going to read it. He says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Good news of victory. The gospel. We're a part of a different kingdom. Let's get back to Colossians and, and Paul and his prelude to his actual prayer where he gives the reason for his thanksgiving. And he gives us this. So if you're a note taker, very simply, there's seven things that he gives us that are distinctive about the truth of the gospel. Seven things. Verse four is the beginning. The truth of the gospel, here's your first point, the truth of the gospel is appropriated by faith. It's appropriated by faith. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, Paul was thankful that the Colossians had believed the message of Christ Jesus that had come to them. Very simply, he was thankful that they believed. And to believe something simply means that you're persuaded that it's true. That's where salvation begins. The Colossians had become persuaded by the gospel message that they heard from Epaphras. And Epaphras had been persuaded when he heard the message and seen Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And there are many ways to persuade someone to believe that something is true. But most of them can be boiled down to the accumulation of evidence that supports the belief. And there are different forms of evidence. And by way of example, without getting into too much legal jargon, Epaphras saw the evidence of the miraculous in Paul's ministry. 
He saw the amazing examples of changed lives that lent credence to his message of the gospel. And this evidence accumulated in Epaphras' mind, and he believed. He became persuaded. Remember that description from Acts of Paul's ministry? Bold proclamation as well as reasoning and persuasion. For some, the evidence of a testimonial is a powerful tool of persuasion. Because when someone who is trusted and respected becomes an advocate for an idea or a message, they can be very persuasive, can't they? This is why they use this all the time in marketing, testimonials. We trust their message because of the trustworthiness of their lives. And that trustworthiness of their lives, especially if it's someone we know, it stacks the evidence in favor of the message that they proclaim. This could have been some of what convinced many of the initial converts in Colossae. They knew and respected Epaphras, and his message was believed, and Paul was thankful. But I don't want to confuse you with the idea that simply believing that something is true is the equivalent to what the Bible would consider a faith that saves. The biblical description of saving faith includes belief, of course, but it also implies a willingness to obey and to submit to Christ based on that belief. Many have been convinced that Jesus died and rose again, but they refuse to surrender and entrust their lives to Jesus. And they're not in the company of the faithful. They're not in the company of the saints. They're in the company of shuddering demons, as spoken of in James chapter 2, verse 19. So the question for us today is twofold. Are you persuaded that the gospel is true? And being persuaded, will you surrender your life to Jesus' will? So let's move on. Because this saving faith that the Colossians had produced something in them. Number two, which is also in verse four. The gospel truth produces love. The gospel truth produces love. Paul says, the love which you all have for the saints, or you have for all the saints. Often present together in Paul's writings are faith and love. But evidence to Paul that faith was genuine was the exhibition of love that comes from the believer's life. Something changes deep down in the hearts of men and women when they believe the gospel. Love is produced. The word here is agape, and we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. It means goodwill toward others that seeks the the well-being of others to the extent that that they are willing to sacrifice their own well-being for the sake of the other. And this is a love that mirrors Christ's love for His people. You stop caring so much about you and yourself and you begin to think more of others and how you can help them and how you can serve them. And this change in a person's soul is not just evidence to other believers of a truly changed life, it's also powerful evidence to a watching world that something is distinctly good or better about the Christian life. John 13, 34-35, which we just covered in Sunday school, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's something special about the way Christians love one another in particular. It's persuasive to some in the world. And this is what the Colossians exhibited. 
love for all the saints. They took care of one another. They lightened each other's loads and they bore one another's burdens. And we look in the early church in, in the book of Acts and we see what that believers, it says, held all things in common. Remember, they sold their property even. They, they gave all this money to the apostles and the apostles distributed it. It says they held all things in common in the early book of Acts. And some want to use this example of commonism, which is a word I just invented, right? Commonism. It's real because I just made it up. As justification for communism, right? They want to they use communism and acts as justification for communism. And this is totally wrong-headed for many reasons, and which I won't get into today, other than I will mention the fact that in Acts, the communal aspect of that early church was voluntary, and it was motivated by love. The love produced by the gospel. Communism is completely antithetical to this. It is involuntary, and it is imposed upon people, and it's motivated by the greed and the deception of the ruling elite. Very, very different. So, let me distill the point I'm trying to make here very simply. Love good, communism and socialism bad, okay? Yeah, put that in your notes. Let's move on. Number three, so the truth of the gospel is appropriated by faith, it produces love. And number three, the truth of the gospel is anchored in hope. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard. Now, hope can be expressed in two ways. It can be expressed subjectively as an attitude of the heart, sometimes referred to as wishful thinking, or it can be expressed objectively as referring to a reality which the hope, for which the hope is expressed. And this second one, this objective sense, is the one that we hear and see here in verse 5. And we can tell this by the way that the word hope is modified in the sentence. Hope is described as laid up. And further, the, lo- the location of where it's laid up is given. It's, it's safeguarded in heaven. And this is also in, in the present tense. The, ho- the hope is for something that is already obtained. It's just not realized. It's presently owned, but it's laid up for future access. Think of it like this. Think of a wealthy person establishing an irrevocable trust for the benefit of their heirs. The assets are held in safekeeping by the trust and are for the future access after the wealthy person dies or after the wealthy person designates. Thus, in light of this hope that we have, Christian lives in the present are emboldened and empowered. They ought to be free from worry about their destiny because they know that they have a rich inheritance awaiting them. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved, like laid up in heaven for you. It's a present reality but it's laid up for future access. We know that nothing that this earth can offer will ever compare to what is ahead of us in eternity. And so we feel free to sacrifice the present pleasures of this life 
in pursuit of an enduring and everlasting reward. Because hope produces a stronger desire for the promise of the future than the pleasures of the day. Let's move on. Number four. Verse six. The truth of the gospel is for all the world. The truth of the gospel is for all the world. He says, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world. The gospel had reached the Colossians and the Lycus Valley, but it had spread much further than that. The gospel is not just a religion, not just the religion of a, of a local community that worship a localized deity, like so much of the ancient world believed. Think of the infatuation with Artemis in Ephesus. If you go back and read through Acts 19 and 20 this afternoon, they're infatuated with Artemis of Ephesus. Remember, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, in Colossae, they were in a, a, an area within, like, sort of like a county, within uh, the province of Asia Minor called Phrygia. And a common Phrygian goddess in those days was Sybil. She was the mother of goddesses to many in, in Colossae. Jesus conquered and surpassed all of them. The gospel is for all the world. You know, in our day and age, we're, we're hypersensitive about the possibility of offending the cultures of other peoples and people groups. Many influencers today talk negatively about things like cultural appropriation. Have you guys ever heard that word? I'm sure you have. Cultural appropriation. And what they mean by this, there's a need to bend over backwards to avoid any appearance of racism or bigotry or disrespect to cultures other than our own. We treat culture as sacred and off the table for discussion. But this isn't how Paul viewed culture. Not at all. I mean, he was sensitive to culture. He wasn't just out to immediately offend people by making fun of their cultural distinctives. He was sensitive to them, but he also sought to adopt a degree of them in the cultural norms so that he could adapt the means of communicating the gospel most effectively to reach those people and ultimately transform those cultures into conformity with the kingdom of God that was to come. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Paul kind of describes his, his, his mode of operation, if you will. He says, for though I am, a free, I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So in Paul's mind, culture was not sacred. The gospel was sacred. Local deities were not to be respected. They were to be refuted and replaced by the one true God, Jesus, who would one day return to judge and reign over those cultures and peoples to whom he ministered. The gospel is universal in its importance and its, in, in its application. It's for all the peoples of the world. And in truth, there will not be a corner of any part of the creation that will not eventually bow the knee to him when he comes in his kingdom. 
But this leads us to our next distinctive of the gospel. The gospel is appropriated by faith. It produces love. It's anchored in hope. It's for and reaches the world. And fifth, the truth of the gospel produces fruit and increases. Paul says it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. So not to spend too much time on this, but the picture is similar to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 4 in his parable of the seed. It says, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself doesn't know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So the the imagery is, the seed has this power within itself to, to germinate and to grow. We don't do anything except throw it on the ground or put it in the ground. It has this power within itself to do this. And we marvel at it. The gospel is like this. Or like later in the chapter, in Mark 4, Jesus says, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are, upon, that are in the garden, I'm sorry, smaller than the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and it becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. The gospel message itself, when proclaimed, has the power within it to produce fruit. This is why Paul's ministry included reasoning and persuasion, but it also just, it included just a bold proclamation. Because the gospel itself has the power to produce fruit. And it does this everywhere it goes. And the fruit is is sort of in two senses. One, it causes growth. It grows within the lives of individual believers. But it has another feature in that it it spreads to other people. Paul spoke of this power in Romans 1.16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. For the whole world, the gospel can transform. let's Let's move on to number six. The truth of the gospel is rooted in grace. The truth of the gospel is rooted in grace. The Colossians, when they heard the word, it says by Paul that they understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is what it is. It's good news because of grace. The gospel is only possible because of God's grace. All other religions, all other faiths, all other deities in the world that we could worship are based on a framework where man has to do something to earn something. And this is not grace. Man cannot do anything to earn the favor of God. God grants repentance. God gives salvation. God, in Jesus, condescended to our level to elevate us to His. This is totally unmerited on our part. In other words, God doesn't do any of this this for us because we're somehow lovely to Him. It's because He's so loving toward us that He does this. This is grace. Grace is unique to Christianity. Grace makes all the difference. And there's a whole lot more that I could say about grace, but there's a lot more of Colossians, so I don't want to 
blow it all right now. So I don't need to unpack it all here. So we'll move on to the final distinction of the gospel. This final distinction, number seven, the truth of the gospel is spread by man. The truth of the gospel is spread by man. Verses seven and eight. Jesus told his disciples right before his ascension in Acts chapter one, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what does he say? You shall be my witnesses. You'll be the ones giving evidence. You'll be the ones boldly proclaiming and reasoning and persuading. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Romans 10.14 tells us, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The gospel of truth is spread by man, by you, by me. It's spread by us. This is how God designed it. He intends for us to share in the labor and to share in the reward of the gospel. And that transformative, powerful gospel message boldly proclaimed through your mouth and displayed in your living are the reasoning and the persuasion that convinces those around you that the message is truth. Let me say that again. I think that's important. The gospel message boldly proclaimed through your mouth and displayed in your living are the reasoning and the persuasion that convinces those around you that the message is truth. So how tragic is it when the saints don't behave as faithful to their calling. Remember Paul said to the saints and faithful brethren at Colossae, the Colossians had a faithful brother that brought the message to them. It was Epaphras, remember? Epaphras was important. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras was important. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Proverbs 10 verse 7 says that the memory of the righteous is blessed. You know, when they open up this letter from Paul and they saw Epaphras' name in that letter, they remembered him. They remembered him, and his memory was a blessing to them. Proverbs 26 through 7 says that a man proclaims his own loyalty. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. You know, the life of Epaphras is a testament to the power of integrity. He's an exhibit displaying the importance of reputation. And as I pondered more this week the importance of Epaphras, it was impressed upon me that Epaphras was the crucial link for all of the Lycus Valley. Epaphras was, was known to Paul. He was there with him. 
He was the one who had told Paul of the Colossians, love in the Spirit, like it says in verse 8. He was present with Paul. And Paul described him in terms that were both familiar and appreciative. He's known by Paul as beloved, fellow bondservant. But he's also appreciated as the fellow bondservant, the fellow servant, the fellow faithful servant of Christ. But Epaphras was also known to the Colossians. He was that link between them and Paul. And without Epaphras' avowal of Paul's ministry and message, would the letter from Paul have been welcomed or heeded at all? I think it's unlikely that it would have been. It's possible that it may not have ever even been preserved for us if it weren't for Epaphras. You see, the people respected Paul, whom many of them had never met, because Epaphras had vouched for Paul. And I think about that and I think, man, what an important lesson and an example for us about the importance of our reputation and integrity before others. How careful must we be in our living? The thought that my reputation, if it is or becomes a bad one, could be used as evidence, cited, supporting someone's refusal of the gospel, that ought to make me tremble inside. Does that cause you to tremble inside? How is your reputation? How is your integrity? The truth of the gospel is spread by man. What a staggering thought. What a weighty responsibility. The truth of the gospel is spread by man. And if I as a man don't live by what I proclaim and ignore God's standards in my life and live as one who's never been affected by the gospel and I set that kind of example for other people and they look upon my life and think less of Jesus because of me. What a weighty responsibility. But I think that's enough for us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, all of us have failed and fallen. All of us need your grace. And Father, the peace that we have is rooted in the grace that you've shown. Lord God, I pray you'd help us to be faithful. Lord, you call us saints. You call us righteous. You look on us and you see Jesus. You see the, the purity of your son because we've received him in faith. But Father, do you look on us and also see us as faithful to the call that you've made? Lord, I know there's times in my life where I have fallen short, far short of what I ought to, fall short of the worthy walk that I ought to have. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that we would take a lesson from Epaphras about integrity and, and reputation. But I pray also, Lord, we would take a lesson from Paul regarding his passion for the gospel. And I pray, Lord, we'd mirror Epaphras in our reputation and in our integrity and, in integrity and that we would mirror Paul in our passion to spread the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Stand with, if you will, for the benediction. Go forth in the faith, love, and hope of the gospel, rooted in grace, producing fruit as you reach the world, taking the gospel with you in your speech and in your living. Depart in the grace and peace of Jesus. Amen.